Welcome to Belfast City Vineyard, where we are pursuing formation in the presence of Jesus, community gathered around Him, and the impact He empowers us to bring in our families, city, and the world. The following message was given at one of our Sunday services. For more information, visit our website at BelfastCityVineyard.com. Good morning, BCV. It's such a privilege of mine to get to come to you this morning and to be able to be beamed in to wherever you're watching this from and come and share from the scriptures. If I haven't met you before, my name is Johnny. And as I say, it's a real joy of mine to be able to come and share with you all this morning. So we find ourselves on the far side of Easter, that highlight or climax in the Christian and church calendar. And I don't know about you, but sometimes on the far side of Easter, after having walked alongside and through the cross and into the resurrection, sometimes I get to the far side of it and I kind of feel a little bit disorientated. This might just be my experience, but I sometimes find myself here at this time in the Christian calendar and I'm almost not sure where to go from there. The cross and the resurrection open up a new realm of possibility and they unlock new hope. But the week following, Easter has passed and sometimes I'm just not sure what's next. And so that's where we find ourselves, on the far side of Easter, many of us rightly overjoyed and filled with expectation, and others of us feeling a little bit disorientated. What happens next? And most of us somewhere in between those two extremes. And today what I want to do is I want to take a chapter from the book of John right after that moment post-resurrection. And I want to look at it through that lens of what now. If you've spent any time in and around the Bible or in and around the scriptures, you might know that the book of John is one of the four Gospels. It's one of the the stories or the good news accounts of the life of Jesus. And of these four books, there's three of them that are called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. And then there's this fourth one, the book of John, that tells us a different perspective almost than some of the other stories in Matthew, Mark and Luke that we see in the other ones. And right here in this chapter that we're going to look at today in John, it's placed at the end of the entire book. And if you read through the entire book of John, it might seem like a little bit of a strangely placed chapter, chapter 21, because right up through the book of John, chapters 1 through 20 seem to all fit together and then we've got this chapter placed on the end that if you read it in isolation can seem a little bit oddly placed but as I've spent the last number of weeks reading and rereading this part of the book of John I have become convinced and completely inundated with the realization that this has some really powerful stuff to speak to us. So if you have a Bible with you, wherever you're watching from today, please join me in John chapter 1. And as I said, what I want to do is I want to look at this passage through a very particular lens. I want to view this chapter through the lens of what now. Craig Keener said of this chapter, John 21's focus is not confirming the resurrection, but tying up the gospel's loose ends concerning the continuing call of the church. That's what this chapter is about, the continuing call of the church. What's next? 
The story thus far in the book of John that John the writer has taken us on has seen Jesus start his ministry at the wedding in Cana and right through perform a number of miracles and signs that point forward to the moment that we find ourselves in. Then over the last number of chapters preceding the one that we're going to look at this morning, we've walked through the Easter story, the upper room with the disciples, the unjust trials, the crucifixion of an innocent Jesus, and then three days later, his resurrection and defeat of death. Then in chapter 20, Jesus sends his disciples out into the world. He breathes his breath upon them and empowers them to carry the good news wherever they go. The story could easily stop right there. But then we turn here to chapter 21. John 21 verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. The disciples have witnessed the resurrection. They have literally walked through the first Easter, hand on hand, watching it with one another. In a real life account of that first Easter. They've watched the road to the cross. They've been heartbroken and in despair as they've seen Jesus crucified. And then they've went through days of fear and doubt and confusion in between the cross and resurrection. And then they've experienced this immense joy and delight as their saviour has been raised from the dead. But here in this scene, we have Peter, Thomas and Nathaniel and a number of unnamed others fishing. Almost as if everything has kind of returned to normal. And I almost see some of this what now within them. Okay, we've seen the most world-shaking event to ever happen unfold before our very eyes. Jesus is alive and he's told us to wait for him. But what do we do now? Most scholars think that this moment by the Sea of Galilee probably happened a few weeks after chapter 20, just before this in the book of John, where John writes about Jesus appearing to his disciples and then to Thomas. Imagine those few weeks. You went home and you've told your family what's happened. Jesus is alive. You're excited and energised. And a few days pass by. The initial buzz kind of begins to wear off. You're still super excited, but your family haven't seen Jesus in the flesh. They're wondering if maybe you're losing it a little bit. Another few days and you're beginning to wonder if Jesus is going to continue to show up. Where is he? It's been five or six days now. Your family are telling you maybe it's time for you to get back out on the water. Try some of that fishing that you did before you went to follow Jesus. And you say, no, everything's changed. I can't do that. I must wait for him. And then another few days. And then a week. And then two weeks. You still believe. You're still expecting. You still are ready for Jesus to come back. But you're just not sure what's next. You hear that Simon and the guys are going out fishing. That seems normal. Maybe I will go try that. I probably have to do something normal in the in-between. What if he doesn't return? What if the resurrection was where it stops? Then you're in this boat with your fellow disciples, the guys you've spent the last number of years with, and you're all feeling some of those emotions. You've worked hard all night and the fruits of your labour are none. You're not quite sure if maybe you've just lost your knack for it after years of following Jesus. Questions begin to bubble up and then as the sun dawns, the what next comes in to focus. Verse 4. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was him. 
Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got to land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. What's going on here? Well, firstly, obedience without obligation. Jesus calls out to his disciples from the shoreline, and at first they don't recognise him. He asks them if they've caught anything and dejected and deflated, they turn round and they shout across and they say that one word, no. And then Jesus tells them to do something ludicrous. He calls out to them and says, put your net on the right side. Now, these guys were fishermen. Chances are the net that they had was very, very large and they've been fishing all throughout the night with no success. They know their chances of getting a catch decrease rapidly as sunrise comes and as the fish begin to swim deeper to get away from the dawn. And their small Galilean boat likely had their steering oar on the side of the boat that Jesus was telling them to move the net round to. It was impractical, illogical advice from a stranger on the shore. But yet, they do it. They obey Part of what is next for us on the far side of Easter as we follow Jesus is plain and simple obedience. The story that we participate in is one where the climax is the defeat of death, the thing that none of us can go on to escape in our own strength. All things are suddenly possible and a lot of times the invitation from God in the lives that we now live in can sound a lot like a whisper from the shore that makes no sense and would be no one's good advice. But sometimes that's the very thing that God is inviting us into. I cannot count the amount of stories that I have heard from within our wonderful community over the relatively short period of time that I have had the privilege of being around it, both during my time here and prior to when I came, about when people have chosen to obey the most illogical of promptings with a deep conviction that it was God telling them to do it. Many times against the advice of well-meaning onlookers, but when it came to crunch time, it was 110% the leading of the Lord. Now, let me caveat that. Don't mishear me saying that there isn't room for wise counsel and words of wisdom. Don't hear me saying that anything goes and all advice is worth executing upon. But on the far side of the cross and resurrection, there is very little room for that's impossible. Or God couldn't do that. Proverbs 3 verses 5 to 6, a well-known proverb, reminds us of this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight.
And notice what happens here after these guys obey. There's a lot that we could go into and I'm going to choose to view this passage through that particular lens. So we won't dive into all the details. But when the disciples obey, there is an abundance of provision. Their nets are overflowing with fish. Peter has this freak out and he jumps on the water, desperate to get to the shoreline and see Jesus. And as he lands on the shore and clears the salt water from his eyes, he sees Jesus sitting there by a charcoal fire with fish and bread already prepared for them to eat. And what I love here, BCV, is that when Jesus tells Simon to bring some of those fish that you've caught, Simon Peter, go grab some of the fish from the net, Peter goes off and grabs some of the fish from the 153, to be exact, fish that they caught and brings them to Jesus. But notice something. In their obedience, there is this abundance of provision. Yet before they've even arrived on the shore, Jesus has more than enough to meet their needs. He's sitting by this charcoal fire with fish and bread ready for them to eat. He doesn't need any of their 153 fish. He doesn't need Simon to go over and grab from this hole, but he wants them involved in the process. He isn't depending upon them to provide, but he wants them involved in the process. The obedience that we are asked to participate in doesn't come with a pressure or expectation upon us to make it all happen. On the far side of Easter, the resurrection life that we live, yes, comes with power, yes, comes with authority, yes, comes with the requirement to obey, but does not come from a controlling taskmaster expecting us to churn out and produce output so that he can stack us up against the rest. The obedience that we are invited to move into and the output that comes from it is simply from the hand of God already preparing breakfast on the shore. God isn't waiting for us to haul in the load, count up the numbers so that he can make the output happen from what we produce. He isn't pending our input so that he can make it all happen and make sure that his goals for creation come to pass. His desire is that we would realise that without him, we can do nothing. We will be stuck on that boat out in the middle of the night with no catch. But that with him, we can do far, far more when we obey. But the far more that we do is not measured or ranked or rated, but is simply an opportunity to say, come and bring what you have. Sit with me as I nourish you with what I have already prepared. And in my own life, I have watched this come and prove to be true. Pre-COVID, whenever I was deciding between a number of different options as to whether or not to take a job or go into an internship that was paid or come to BCV and do an internship that wasn't paid, I couldn't work out all the different options. And I had many different people giving me lots of different advice. But I chose to go with the option that I thought the Lord was inviting me into, even though it didn't make the most worldly sense. Convinced that I was really not 100% sure, I chose to go with what the Lord was saying after many, many points choosing and kind of going back and forth and very reluctantly stepping into it. But as I said yes, the Lord provided. And I was able to do the year of interning with BCV with way more in abundance than I could ever have imagined. And all that time, I was thinking to myself, I had to do it. I had to produce. I had to provide for myself. But time and time again, the Lord kept providing. God knows what he is doing. He just asks us to obey and go with him on it. So firstly, obedience without obligation. Secondly, intimate forgiveness. 
After the catch of the 153 fish and the meal, we read of this well-known encounter between Jesus and Peter in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Then a third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him this third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Now, if you've been around the gospel stories at all before, you may know a little bit of Simon Peter's story. He's one of, if not the leader of the disciples and the early church. And Jesus has spoken over him that he's going to be this rock upon which the church will be built. But simultaneously, in the midst of being an incredible leader, he's also a little bit of a loose cannon, overstating himself on a regular basis and shooting himself in the foot on more than one occasion. And one particularly poignant moment where we see this is shortly before Jesus is taken to the cross and Peter says to him in the upper room I would never deny you I would never ever deny you when Jesus predicts that Peter would go on to do so and then as Jesus is taken to the cross and as the crowds turn against him and as public influence is turned the opposite direction Peter proceeds to go to deny Jesus not once not twice But three times, while sitting by a charcoal fire, before the dawn comes and the rooster crows, he denies Jesus three times. Here in this passage, we have the post-resurrection Jesus, just after the day has dawned, sitting by a charcoal fire. The hints are all there. Peter is clearly trying to prove himself to the Lord because it's the last time that he's seen him since his denial. He's off sprinting to get the catch from the fish. He's running off of the boat and swimming onto the shore. He's the one who jumps up to grab the fish whenever Jesus says. And then Jesus takes him aside. Can you imagine the tension? The first moment that they've had an interaction since the denial, a proper one-to-one. Peter knows, Jesus knows, the writer of John knows, these guys have unfinished business. Now I want to step back from the story for a moment. And I want you to imagine just within your own personal life, you've invited someone round to your house for dinner. Imagine maybe a new colleague in work or someone from our church or another church or an old family connection that you haven't seen in years. And you have them round to your house for a wonderful meal and you're spending time enjoying each other's company. Then at the end of the meal, your guest insists, and I mean insists, that they go into the kitchen and do the cleaning up. And you try to resist and do the Northern Irish thing and you know, no, definitely not. You're not allowed to do it. But they insist and persist until you eventually cave. And off they go into the kitchen and start doing the dishes. A couple of minutes go by, they're beavering away and then all of a sudden you hear this mighty crash. You rush in wondering what on earth could have happened and all over the floor there is this bone china collection passed down from generations through your family that's stored away in one of the top shelves for safekeeping in tiny little pieces. 
You don't care much for Bone China, but you look at this thing and immediately the sentimental value rises up within you. The emotion, the frustration, the sadness, the anger, all of the stuff that you're trying to do a good job at holding in, you are devastated. You don't care much for it, but the sentimental value makes you feel all of those things. Now, I want you to imagine that person goes home, you're devastated, you're sad, but a few weeks later, that same person comes round to your house again. They sit down for a meal. What do you do when cleanup time comes? I think Jesus would give the guest the cloth and tell them to go in and do the dishes. Let me explain what I mean. For us to know healing, deep, deep healing and forgiveness, for the shame and the embarrassment and the things that haunt us, that we cannot show to anyone else around us, God knows that we have to walk to those places with him. Peter royally messed up, like outright stated to Jesus himself face to face, I will never betray you. I will never let you down. Then he betrayed him three times over, publicly stating that he didn't even know who he was. Then here in this scene, Jesus says to him three times over, at the dawn, beside a charcoal fire, reminiscing every moment from his utter embarrassment and shame, that he not only forgives Peter's mistake, but he reinstates him and trusts him to shepherd God's people. Post-cross and resurrection, we are not just forgiven for our shortcomings. The bone china does not just get picked up and we're told it's okay. We're handed a cloth and invited to go and do the dishes once more again. We are trusted to try even when we get it wrong. Jesus wants us to be people on the far side of the Easter story that know we can draw close to him and meet him in those places where we are most ashamed. To meet him in those places where we would rather he didn't see. To go to those parts of our history where we failed and we've got it wrong and hear that there is not just forgiveness at the cross there, but also an invitation to the resurrection life. We are trusted to try again. So where is it for you that God might be inviting you to go back to those places with him? To journey to the places that you have held hidden in your day-to-day conversation with him? To walk close to him and hear him say, not only are you forgiven, but you're trusted to try again. Firstly, what's next for us after the Easter story is obedience without obligation. Secondly, it's forgiveness with trust. And then thirdly, it's looking forward. Peter's just had this moment of intimacy with Jesus and he's been recommissioned by him. And after that, he's called to tend the flock and Jesus then hints to Peter what his death may go on to look like. And according to early church tradition, Peter well and truly did not go on to deny Jesus again, so much so that he ended up being crucified for his faith. That's why Jesus says in verse 19, someone else will stretch out your hands, hinting towards the way he would die. And then we read this, verse 19 onwards. Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. What is that to you? Peter has just been fully reinstated. He has had his shame lifted off of him. He has been repointed 
towards his calling, not just to be a fisher of man, but to live into shepherding and caring for God's flock. And yet in that moment, he cannot help but look out of the corner of his eye and wonder what's going to happen with the other guy. Can you feel some of that within yourself? I mean, John and Peter have been walking alongside each other and walking alongside and following Jesus for the last two or three years. They've basically been on the inner circle of disciples. And although their personalities are different, they've shared so much in their journey with Jesus, with one another. And then at this moment, their paths are about to diverge. Peter's about to take a much more forward-facing stance in the following of Jesus. And John, although heavily involved, isn't going to be quite as vocal as Peter. And Peter's first thought when Jesus says what he is asking him to do is what about that guy? What about what he's going to get? What's his calling going to be? I don't know about you, but I can hear some of my own heart in their moment with Jesus. What about them? Okay, God, sounds good. Let's do it. I'm excited for what you have for me. But but what about that guy over there? What about their calling? How am I going to stack up against them? Sometimes we can so easily get caught looking to the left and to the right and all around us and we can get distracted on what is right in front of us. I remember once hearing someone say that in the kingdom we all get the same slice of the pie. We cannot let ourselves get caught in the comparison trap of looking on to other people's callings and other people's invitations from God and stacking them up against ourselves. We will just become disillusioned. What's next for us is to look forward at what God has on your life and run hard after it. Almost like blinkering ourselves in. Or as the writer of the Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 12, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Peter goes on to live very much into what God has for him. And John does the same. Now we on the far side of the Easter story are invited to participate in a story that God has opened up through the cross and resurrection to set our sights on what he is calling us to and not looking at the comparisons and the distractions that can pull us aside so, so easily. So BCV, as we come in for a landing, this passage in John 21, most scholars say, is meant to be a picture of what the church is called to continue to do after that first Easter. And as we move into the rest of our year, as Easter 2022 becomes something that's gone by and we look forward to Easter 2023, let's move from this place into what God has for us. Let's not get stuck in the in-between waiting on that boat in Galilee, but let's be people that pay attention and obey, not from a place of obligation, but because he invites us to. People who walk intimately with God, knowing that he's not only forgiven us, but he's invited us in to purpose. He trusts us to try again. And people who live into that purpose by fixing our eyes forward and looking straight ahead into what Jesus has for us. What I would love to do as we close is just take a moment and pray over some of that. And so you can join me at home if you're there um, sitting down. You can join me as I just pray some of that stuff over us. So come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the, the disciples, Peter, John and the many other guys that we meet through the stories in the Gospels, like they are, they're humans just like us. And they show us so much of our own kind of temperament and 
we can see some of us in their stories. And we thank you that it's not like distant and far away, but it's stuff that we can relate to and engage with. And I just pray, Lord God, for those of us out there watching, for those of us that will watch later, that you would just come and rest heavy upon us right now. I pray that you would help us to pay attention to your still, small voice. Even whenever it sounds ludicrous and out there, when it is you, I pray we would know it is you and we would be unafraid to obey that. And I pray, Father, that we would do that not from a place of trying to prove ourselves to you, but from a place of knowing that we are forgiven, not with obligation, but because we are intimate with you and know that we are forgiven. I pray that we would know that we are not just forgiven, but we are trusted. And so, Father, where it is that you're calling us forward, I pray for people out there today that are just struggling to know that they are trusted by you. May they hear your voice that says, I trust you. I trust you to try again. And Lord, we pray that you would fix our eyes forward on what you have for us as a community, on what you have for us as individuals. Let us not get distracted and caught up in the things that can pull us away, but let us look forward to what you have for us. Holy Spirit, rest upon our community. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For all the latest information about what's happening in the life of our church, or if you have any questions or comments, head over to BelfastCityVineyard.com.